With a thousand things on our to-do lists, a lot of us are doing life without any room for rest. Literally forgetting to take care of ourselves, feeling overwhelmed and frustrated with the constant buzz of anxiety in our heads. I strive to help you, the everyday woman, to stop and to embrace the power of effective and sustainable self-care in order to reduce that exhausting anxiety and find nourishment and balance in your everyday life. I'm Sarah Miller, and I'm here to help you stop racing through life and start being the happiest and healthiest version of you, all by caring for yourself like someone worth caring for. Join me for conversations about self-care, mental health, mindfulness, and so much more that will help you build your own self-care life. I'm Sarah, and you're listening to the Self-Care Life Podcast. Hello, I am so excited to be here with an old, I guess, acquaintance, coworker, kind of, from my her track days. Um, I'm here with Jen from the Company You Keep podcast. Jen, do you want to take a sec to introduce yourself? Tell us about yourself a little bit. Yeah, so obviously I worked at her track, um, and that was really my foray sort of into the blogging, podcasting, um, media aspect of things for myself personally. Um, I am a four-time melanoma survivor, which I'm sure we will end up talking a little bit more about. And um, I've also, um, I would consider myself a mental health advocate as well, even more so after going through um, everything with my melanoma diagnosis. And I'm just sort of coping with the ups and downs of life with cancer, after cancer, and the in-between, because that's one thing that's super unique to my experiences. I had cancer, went five and a half years without, and then the last 18 months has been, now you have it, now you don't, now you have it, now you don't, and so it's been a real roller coaster, Um, and kind of learning to take care of myself and live um, fully in those pockets of time in between and not constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop and trying to like live in the moment and enjoy every day. Um, so company you keep started out, it was personal storytelling, um, through personal development. And in the last year it has really shifted. And so wanting to take that same, concept, um, but focusing a little bit more in on the cancer and chronic illness and invisible illness um, side of things and sharing those stories, because I think there are stories that are so important, whether you have cancer, have a chronic illness or not, and um, really opening up and helping to educate people and helping those that are going through it know they're not alone and then helping those who have a loved one who is going through it know how best they can be there for them and support them. And I think that is so great. I mean, it's, you know, you, like you said, you have such a unique experience in surviving melanoma four times, four times. That's incredible. First off, um, but also terrible. I mean, it's both, you know, it's, yeah, it's a lot. Um, so I guess to just like start, let's talk about what your experience was. I know you've mentioned previous mental health struggles, even separate from your experience with melanoma. So would you be open to, uh, talking through that a little bit? Yeah, I feel like it's hard to even pinpoint when, it really started. So even as like a small child, I've always felt things very deeply. I actually, when I started therapy, I told my therapist at one point that I felt like I feel things stronger than other people. I'm like, other people are like, yeah, that's sad. But I'm like, that's devastating. And um, so when things are hard, it always felt like I had a tougher time bouncing back. The alternative to that is like the good times, I guess, feel extra good. And that's how I've tried to learn to look at it. I feel like it's made me a lot more empathetic person. I have been able to build stronger relationships because of it and to be able to feel love more deeply. Like, yes, the pain and the hard and the sad is 
it's really tough to work through, but we all have to learn to deal with it anyway. So I've learned to look at it as a gift to um, be able to love more deeply. Um, But because of that, I think it also probably left me open a little bit more predisposed to depression um, and probably even anxiety, although I really didn't struggle with anxiety much. There's a lot of anxiety in my family. My mom has it. My sister struggles with it. My dad is at least a worrier, if not somebody (laughs) with anxiety. Um, And so it's kind of surprising to me that I didn't really feel like I struggled with that aspect a lot until after um, being diagnosed with cancer. But I remember um, like even in grade school, like kind of going through and I wouldn't have really understood what I was going through then, but kind of going through these periods where I was really sad or um, didn't feel like people liked me um, and just really like internalizing a lot of that stuff. And there's a very vivid memory of me being like seven years old and I was laying on my bed just sobbing because I was like nobody likes me and my dad's like that's not true and of course my dad like having no idea how to comfort the seven-year-old kid that thinks the world is against her and I was like even my cat ran away and um, like I just I wish and my cat didn't run away but I didn't know it at the time she had passed away in a really tragic way and we thought she had been she had been missing for a few days before they found out what happened and so versus kind of putting my sister and I through the traumatic experience of sharing what actually happened they just kind of didn't update us and let us think that she was gone but not realizing that I thought my cat had left me Mm -hmm. and I still look back and just wish that I could go back and like hug seven-year-old little Jen and be like no like it's it's okay. And like, you're not always going to feel this way. And, um, just even be able to give myself like better coping mechanisms and, um, people love you. And I think that's one thing that's really hard with depression is, um, you really feel like people are better off without you. Um, sometimes like it's definitely a phase, um, that I have felt like, And, um, at one point I was in a friend's wedding and this is years later. Um, so in our mid twenties, I was in a friend's wedding and I was feeling so low about myself and even just like putting on this bridesmaid dress. I almost like backed out of her wedding because I just couldn't imagine like being able to put on this dress and go up there. And so, um, my biggest thing is I've always felt like depression is something that should be able to be cured. That was a misconception that I have that I go to my therapist, I talk it through, I go on medication. And then when I'm good, I can go off my medication and I can stop seeing my therapist and I'm Mm -hmm. fixed. And you learn the coping mechanisms, but it's still, it's a lifelong journey. Sometimes maybe you need therapy more often. Sometimes maybe you don't need it as much. Maybe you will, maybe you'll never need to be on antidepressants. Maybe you'll be on them forever and either one is okay. But um, the journey and the taking care of yourself doesn't stop. But that's also because we deserve that for ourselves. Like it's, it's its own form of self-care. Right. Yeah. And I, I love that you brought up that feeling like it should be something that can just be healed and it can go away. And it's just, it's not the case. I mean, every, every person has their own personal journey of needing to learn how to care for themselves. They need to learn what works, what doesn't. And it's not about doing something temporarily. It's about building it into your lifestyle. Quite literally, it's building the way you, the meeting your needs through the way you design your life, um, whether that is through therapy and medication, or if it's through movement, if it's through like mindfulness and journaling or whatever. I mean, there's so many different things, but it is truly about that 
constant flow of meeting your needs. Um, And I think it's just important to recognize that there's nothing wrong with you, right? There's, yes, it, it's such a not fun experience for you personally, but it is, it's, it's a part of you, but it's not who you are. It's not, it's not everything that you are. You, you're so much more. Um, And yeah, I just, I want to acknowledge that. And then it doesn't define us. It doesn't define, there you go. (laughs) There, that's the perfect way to put it. It doesn't define you to experience depression, to experience anxiety, to experience whatever it is that you're experiencing. Um, I think it's easy to get into that spot where you feel like you are defined by whatever thing that you don't like about yourself or that you struggle with, whatever it may be. Um, uh, so your melanoma story and your mental health around that, I imagine that, especially with your first diagnosis, that that rocked the boat quite a bit. Um, so I would love to hear how you coped with that, with both depression, any anxieties around it and how you took care of yourself during that time, um, or how you learned to care for yourself during that time. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I definitely did not take care of myself during that time, which was, so when I was first diagnosed, I was diagnosed in January of 2015. And um, first there's literally, I don't want to say I was expecting the call to come back. You have cancer, but I also wasn't totally surprised by it either. Um I went in because I did have a mole that looked suspicious. I was concerned about it. When I went into the dermatologist to have him look at the mole, he put his hand on my shoulder and said, thank you for coming in and showing me this. So I knew it was not good. I knew it was something that had to be taken seriously. And whether it was cancerous or not, it was good that it was coming off and that we were looking at it because he was definitely worried about what the possibilities could be. And, um, so they do what's called a shave biopsy. Um, so they use like a razor and scrape it off and send it down to a lab to take a look and determine, you know, is it normal, mildly atypical, moderately atypical, severely atypical, or is it cancerous? And if it is cancerous and then like what stage, what type and all of that. And, um, so they said to, expect the results in, I want to say it was like seven to 10 business days. I don't remember exactly, but they're like, if you don't hear from us by Friday of next week, give us a call and um, make sure like the results have come in. And I got a call on Monday afternoon of the next week. So was definitely, I was thinking it would probably be more Wednesday when I heard. So when the call came on Monday, um, I definitely recognize that pretty immediately as a red flag also, but I was at work, so I missed the call. So I'd gotten a voicemail. We're calling with results. Please call us back. And I was like, okay, they want me to call back. They want to tell me quote unquote in person or like not leave a voicemail. And so I called back and um, when a nurse answered, it was pretty much my confirmation. Like, this is bad news. Cause she looked me up in the system and she's like, oh my gosh, please hold. Like the doctor needs to talk to you. I mean, there was definitely like a huge sense of urgency there. Like the doctor needs to talk to you. So, but even despite all of that, like still nothing prepares you to hear the words you have cancer. Like I just, I so vividly remember like the time of day where I was, um, like somebody coming out of the elevator and smiling at me. It was a coworker and I smile back because it's like instinct or what you do. But on the inside, I'm like dying inside. And I was like, my world is changing. And just, it was just very surreal. And I really never processed everything until after it was over, um, so to speak, because I went in for a consultation that Wednesday 
Um, probably the hardest part was um, after I scheduled the consultation with my doctor, um, I called my mom back and, or I called my mom, I hadn't talked to her yet. So I called my mom and she answers the phone and I was trying to tell her that I have cancer and like, I couldn't even get the words out. Cause that was the first time that it really felt when you have to say it out loud, that makes it real. And so I told her about the consultation. Um, I was living in Chicago at the time when she was in Wisconsin, which is like a six hour um, distance by car. It's only an hour flight, but she wasn't about to fly in for a consultation. So um, she attended via speakerphone and um, I was in surgery the following Friday. So within it must be like 10, 11 days of finding out that I had cancer. Um, they went in and they were able to remove it um, just to be sure that they got it all. Of course, they sent it down to the lab again and they removed um, a couple of lymph nodes to make sure that I hadn't traveled to the lymph nodes because once it goes to the lymph nodes, that means it could have spread to other locations within the body. Um but everything came back clear. I have no idea how long it took to get those results. I, I don't remember. Um, those are usually a lot faster. So it was probably early the next week, but it was definitely before I'd even physically recovered from the surgery. Um, I already knew like everything was clear and I want to say it was probably like a month or two before it was even really like, holy crap, like I had cancer and, and it's gone. I, I never really had time to process it um, before, like I was in surgery and then it was over. I mean, um, of course now we know that it wasn't over, but at the time it was kind of like, not like that was it, but um it was just, it's a really hard situation to even explain kind of like, and then you just move on and you're like, okay, I'm good. And then, um, but I did have to make a really tough decision. So like I said, I was living in Chicago at the time and I was in sort of a not super healthy on off again relationship um, that I was very attached to. And I was entry level in a job um, that was in my career path and I saw it as a foot in the door and really wanted to work my way up, but also recognizing that if the cancer did come back, because I was going to have to go in for, um, for the next five years, I was going to have to go in every three months um, to have checks to make sure that it hadn't returned. And I was like, if it does come back, am I going to be able to do this on my own? My parents, um, my mom and my sister were able to come out for that first surgery. They were there for the weekend. They were there with me the day of the surgery for a few days after. And um, so they were able to help with like bandages and showering and the things that you cannot do after surgery is like, you don't realize it until you have to. Um, like I couldn't wash my own hair because I couldn't lift my arm up and things like that and um, stuff. And so I was like, would I be able to do this on my own? I definitely had good friends in Chicago, but I had only been there two years at the time. So nothing like the you know, friends that I had back in Minnesota or in Wisconsin, where I had spent a majority of my life. And then of course, like family is typically your strongest support system. So the day of my first post-op skin check was actually the day before my lease was due or up for renewal. And so I had to make a pretty big decision and I changed my mind probably 17 times a day for like two weeks because I had to give a two months notice if I was leaving, which was pretty much right about the time of my surgery. And so um, my leasing um, office and property managers were incredible with giving me a little bit of an extension to figure out like what I needed to do given the circumstances. But um, I ultimately decided to move back and I'm glad that I did. Long run, I feel like it was um, the right decision, but there was a lot of loss and a lot of grief in that too. 
Um, one of the things is this relationship that I was so attached to. I was afraid that if I left, like it would end and I would never see or talk to this person again. And I couldn't imagine life without them, but not because the relationship was healthy by any means. Like I was more attached, like we were codependent and it wasn't a healthy codependency. Um, but then also like having to feel like I was starting over, um, on a career path that, at the time I was working in professional sports and that is a very competitive, really tough field to break into. And so I was going to be moving to a different market where I didn't really have any network and um, how was I going to do that? So, but I moved back home and by home, I mean home, I was with my parents and that was tough. Um, <laughs> moving back to my small town after living in um, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and then Chicago, Illinois, and then my little tiny 30,000 population hometown. That was really <laughs> tough. Um, it took a while to find a job. So I didn't have much outside of literally my parents' home. And um, so that was when I first realized that my mental health was struggling. And I don't even think I was aware of it because it so slowly kind of like crept in until one day I had gone to get coffee. And when I left the coffee shop, I was sitting at a red light and I started like crying and I was like, I wish I were dead. And I just survived cancer and I wished I was dead. And I just like, I was like, this is not a healthy thought. Like something is happening. So um, I talked to my mom and I went, I started seeing a therapist and part of it was I was struggling with a lot of survivor's guilt. Because my experience at that point had been, I went in and had surgery and it's gone. And it was really hard for me to see people who have to go through multiple surgeries or radiation or chemo and they're sick and they lose their hair or they, you know, have to have um, like parts amputated and they lose things that like feel like such a big piece of your identity um, I had a ton of guilt about that and especially, and this is something I still struggle with to today, um, to be perfectly honest, I have a really good friend and a family member who have both been diagnosed with cancer. I have a friend I recently um, lost to cancer just a few weeks ago and all three of them have kids. And that's been really hard because um, I'm not currently in a relationship. I don't have kids. And I'm constantly having to remind myself that that doesn't make me less worthy of surviving. Their, um, their life is not more valuable than mine because they have these like extra relationships. Um, so that's been a big piece of it. And then um, because even though I went five and a half years before my cancer came back, I was still having a lot of biopsies and a lot of surgeries in between. So we were continuing to find atypical moles and we'd remove them and they're like, yeah, that one's moderately or severely atypical. So we have to go in and do surgery and take more um, to make sure we have clear margins and then it doesn't develop into melanoma. And the surgery is a lot less invasive than what I went through with my first one, but it's still minor surgery. You're still um, like, there's still physical recovery time. And in the past activity had always been sort of my way of coping. Um, in the words of Elle Woods, <laughs> <laughs> um, exercise gives you endorphins. <laughs> and so, um, but it's very true. I mean, like being active and working out and running, those were all good outlets when I was like stressed or feeling anxiety or feeling depressed. And then just um, working out also made me feel better about myself and was a really good mood booster. But with all of the surgeries, um, I sort of lost that. Like I wasn't able to do the activity level that I had been able to and every time felt like a bigger setback until I felt so far removed from where I had been 
that it was like discouraging to even try to start again. It felt like pointless and hopeless. Like I can't do it. And I'm also an emotional eater. <laughs> so it's not a good combination. I do um, Emotional eating solves nothing. And I still struggle with it to this day, but um, it ended up becoming a really tough cycle if I was less active and um, then emotionally eating. And I don't know if I know of anyone ever who has sat down and emotionally ate a bowl of steamed carrots. So of course I was eating like pizza and brownies and like comfort foods. And so I was putting on weight, which took a bigger toll on just how I felt about myself. And so I still, um, that's definitely something that I'm still working through. Um, but I really had to find new ways to cope and take care of myself because running just wasn't and really still isn't an option. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it as much as yes, there's that survivor's guilt you still lost the life you had built, what you were, you were doing. So, and you had to redo your, basically remake your whole set of self-care, your coping skills. So I I love your point though, about your, your coping skills having to evolve because of what you had gone through. And I think that that parallel can be seen in most anybody's life, cancer survivor or not, you go through these life changes where your self-care is no longer, sometimes it's no longer an option. Sometimes it just doesn't work for you anymore, whether that's because it's not an option or because it's just no longer helping you. Um, So I think that that's a very interesting parallel. And I would love to touch on that career piece. The Leaving a job that, you know, you thought was your dream job. And then because of life, it just wasn't something you could do anymore. How did you handle that? What was that path like in like healing and finding a new path? I know that you've spoken really fondly of your jobs in recent years when we've spoken and, um, So I'd just love to hear how you got from point A to point B and kind of that, I guess, healing journey in that piece of the puzzle. Yeah. So when I left Chicago and I was um, in my job there, it was really scary to leave it because I felt a little bit like I was giving up this future that I had started and created for myself. And of course, my moving back home, it felt like I was giving up my future to really take a big step backwards. Like I'm living at home, I'm living with my parents. You're giving up a lot of independence, but um, I was still, it felt very defeating for a while, especially as I was applying for job after job after job. (laughs) And um, I'd be excited if I got a rejection letter even because a lot of times you just wouldn't hear anything or it would be like six months and they're like, We've chosen to go with a candidate who had um, stronger qualifications, kind of your basic form letter that's so far later that you forgot you even applied for the job. But um, I found a job actually working with the company that my sister worked for just for a while to have something to do, obviously, of spending money. I mean, my budget was pretty low as far as like cost of living, living at home and stuff like that. But I'm just to be able to um, feel like I could afford to drive an hour and go spend time with my friends um, in Minnesota. Because when I first wasn't working, I was like, how do I drive an hour to go to dinner and spend money on like a nice dinner to hang out with my friends? But I needed that. And sometimes that's really hard is figuring out like what you really needed. Like I needed to maintain those relationships. And even though, you know, there was a little bit of a financial burden on it, my parents are very understanding and it was really hard to ask for help and accept money from them to be able to go to dinner before I started working. But they're like, you can't just like sit at home and not do anything like that's not healthy for you mentally either. And, um, 
fortunately, I was able to find a job. Um, it was an internship. And so that was a little bit hard, but I was also in grad school. So it helped not feel like as much like a step back going from a full-time job to an internship. But um, I found a, I found an internship with a team um, here in Minnesota and I didn't know it at the time. I actually had hesitated to apply for the job because I wasn't sure if the position was really what I was interested in. It was for a communications internship and it was, um, it was with the team, but it was also um, focusing more on like the food and beverage side of things. And I was like, I have no interest in like the food and beverage side of stuff. I want yeah. to showcase the athletes and the fans and um, that relationship and like community engagement and stuff. So I almost didn't apply. And I had a real like reality check with myself. And I was like, what does it hurt to apply? Worst case scenario, they offer you the job and you're like, mm, I don't think it's the right fit. Um, but they reached out and offered me an interview. And after the interview, I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And it was so it was for a social media internship, um, which I didn't really realize from the job application. So, or the job description. Mm. And so when I went and had the interview and got to hear more about what the job entailed and what I would be doing, I actually got really excited and um, allowed myself to hope that I would get it. And that was probably one of my favorite summers working in professional sports. And because of that internship, um, I actually got connected with um, people that worked for another team. And so my internship ended up getting extended to um, do the same thing for um, another team locally here, which in turn then led to a full-time position with that team doing event planning. And um, I was doing that position and I really loved it. I loved working for the team. I loved the people that I worked with, but it was the first time I had really noticed a shift in who I was becoming because of everything that I had been through. And while I still loved everything that I was doing, I wasn't feeling um, this like sense of purpose being fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Um, I think having gone through cancer and everything that, um, I had gone through up to that point really wanted, it instilled in me, like I needed the sense of purpose, but my way of finding it now was helping others and giving back. And that was when I really started leaning into writing. That was when I actually started working for her track and, um, I also found a nonprofit that worked with underserved communities um, and more specifically middle school kids in underserved communities. And they partnered with all of the professional sports teams in Minnesota, which is how I got connected to them. And a coworker actually worked there in the mornings too. And so uh, he connected me with the hiring manager and her and I spoke and we hit it off and so that first year I was doing full-time event planning and then also two mornings a week before I came into the office, I would go to the school and help out in um, a classroom with middle school kids who were all seventh and eighth graders in St. Paul <laughs> and just working with those kids. I mean, middle school kids, holy cow, but <laughs> um, it just, it was so much fun. And I loved that I sort of had these two very different things. I've always liked variety and thrived yeah. on variety. And so it was fun to like get up and go work with the kids. And then after that, I would come in and I would have like my sports job. And then I was writing on the side and it sort of like fulfilled all these boxes of like who I am. And at the end of that season, I was like, maybe this would be feel more balanced or in alignment with me if they were reversed mm -hmm. and the kids were more my full-time and the sports was more my part-time. And it was probably a little bit more 50-50, but um, I ended up 
ending my full-time role shortly after the end of the season, went to part-time and started doing fan experience and social media specifically in fan experience for the team, which is so in alignment with exactly like, I love being social media and having that opportunity to like foster new relationships and connect with people in unique ways. And I am still great friends with people that some of them I've never even met in real life um, because of these fan sites that I run. I have a friend who lives in Canada and he is a diehard Cleveland Indians fan who followed the social media work I did for the Minnesota Twins. And we still keep in touch and he has three cats and my cat follows his cats on Instagram and stuff. And so little connections like those. And that's what I love about social media. There's, there can be a lot of negatives to it, but if you set your boundaries and know what your boundaries are, and um, there's a lot of positive to it also, which I've also found by building a melanoma community, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, so that was just really fulfilling. And for me, the games were the really most exciting part of being part of a team because that was what I loved about sports is that on any given day, like the worst team could like beat the best team. And it felt like they were winning a championship because it was so unexpected and being able to like share my passion for that with other fans and people and a wider reach. And so to be able to do the social media and bring that both to fans and in attendance, but then um, fans who couldn't experience it in person, but being able to help branch that and bring it into their homes was just um, really fulfilling to me. And then that allowed me to spend more time and actually be um, a full-time, we call it academic coach with those kids. So I had my own classroom starting that next year of fourth and fifth graders and I've worked up with them. So my fourth and fifth graders are now seventh and eighth graders, which is oh. super wild. Also very weird with the pandemic, because yeah. when we were forced to go virtual, they were all at like probably armpit height. And then we came <laughs> back in person this year. And all of a sudden, all my like eighth grade boys have like the same baby face, but they're taller than me. Oh. And I'm like, yeah. what happened? Who how did you just sprout (laughs) yes it was very weird and it was it was very interesting how we kind of had to learn because when they were fifth and sixth graders I mean they would just come up and like give me hugs and would think nothing about like reaching into my front pocket to see if I had candy that was the thing for one of them he was out (laughs) my pocket to look for candy and so then coming back this year we're now like they're little men and they're taller than me and like their hesitancy. I'm so excited to see her, but is it appropriate for me to hug her now? So it'd be funny. We'll be sitting, we'll be in the gym and I'll be sitting on the bleachers and they'll come over and they like launch themselves onto the bleachers and like sit so close. They're practically like on my lap, but that's their way of kind of maintaining that, um, like connection while they're sort of like, I can still be close to her, even though I'm not hugging her because I don't know if that's okay. But it was really interesting then too, when um, I was diagnosed with cancer again earlier this year. And so I was out for about two weeks with surgery and then surgery recovery and stuff. And when I came back, they like came right up and gave me a hug. And it was like, that kind of gave them that permission. Like, okay, now it's okay. Like she's been through this and Mm -hmm. I want to be able to support her and sort of like bridge that sort of awkwardness again then too. That vulnerability kind of opening, Mm -hmm. open, reopening it. So I, I know, I noticed that you touch a lot on connection in your work mm-hmm. in your personal life. And I feel like that's definitely a really powerful form of self-care for you. So mm-hmm. I would love to hear, I know you touched on it a little bit with like going and seeing friends for dinner, but I would love to hear more about how building in connection and community in your life has been such a powerful form of self-care and what that looks like in your life. And um, 
you know, for me, I'm very much an introvert. So that's always hard in that, like that balance of like, yes, I want to connect with people, but also having to respect, okay, I need alone time to like decompress and rest as well. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because what I have found is my like in-person or real life circle has gotten really small Mm -hmm. because I'm, I'm also an introvert, which surprises a lot of people because I think people equate, um, like introvert with shy and extrovert with outgoing. And I am an extremely outgoing introvert. I love (laughs) being around people, but like I, it's exhausting and I need to be alone to recharge. So the way that I recharge is like sleep, reading, meditation, writing, like very um, solitary activities. Mm -hmm. And so by keeping my like immediate in-person circle small that allows me more. I don't have to explain to as many people, um, especially in the time zone I am going through, whether it's another diagnosis or surgery. Um, I don't have to explain to as many people why, like, I just am not feeling up to like being social and doing things. Um, but then also, you know, they'll sometimes challenge me, like, would it help you to get out? Because I also have a tendency to isolate when I'm Mm -hmm. struggling and what I really do actually need is a day out. And sometimes it's hard for me to recognize that unless I'm called on it, because if I spend too much time at home alone and then it sort of furthers and fosters that depression. And so I have to find that balance of making sure that I'm taking care of myself and recharging, but also still actually being social and not eliminating the activities that actually do like fill me up from a like connection standpoint. So like my friend's wedding that I was really struggling with. Um, I'm so glad that I did that. It it took a lot of working through how that was going to look um, in therapy. And of course I don't regret it at all. And that was actually one of the very first things that I started um, when I first started sharing about my mental health journey Um, more openly on Instagram. That was one of the very first stories that I shared and the response from other bridesmaids um, was actually really incredible because we're friendly, but like not friends. Like we hang out together, Mm -hmm. but only when we're with our friend who was the bride, right? Like none of us would call each other to necessarily hang out on our (laughs) own, but we all get along and we're friendly, but we don't have that history with each other. Yeah. And so that was really cool to see how like supportive they were. And just like, I never would have known that you were struggling or like, I'm so glad you were there. It was so much fun. And just, um, that was really helpful to hear. Um, or just sometimes like my sister will call and be like, do you want to go for a coffee? And I'm just like, Oh, that means I have to like take a shower or get dressed. And when you're in those throes of depression, mm-hmm. those things feel so hard. But if I can get myself to do it and just have a day with my sister and like my little now 18 month old niece, like afterwards, it's such a mood booster. Um, but I have to get past that. Like, can I really do this? Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And so a really helpful way to balance is part of the thing that I found with cancer is cancer in itself can be very isolating because hopefully you don't know many people with cancer, um, for many reasons, but because of that, like people don't really understand what you're going through, um, and they can't really relate. And so you feel very alone in it, even though you recognize the support and the love and stuff around you. Um, there's something very, validating and healing about having someone that just understands and not having to explain why you feel how you feel and stuff like that. And so sharing a ton on Instagram, I have met virtually met so many (laughs) other um, survivors and from different types, because I like 
two of the people that I've really closely like connected with. Um, one has a sarcoma and one has breast cancer. And so their, their experiences on especially a more like physical or treatment level are so different, but the feelings overlap and align so much. And so they, um, there's just that understanding that you don't find with other people. And the nice thing is because a lot of us are coming with those same like mental and emotional challenges in the melanoma or cancer community, if I for like a week and a half just disappear off of like social media, you come right back in and they're just like, I'm glad you're back. Or maybe they'll check in and be like, how are you doing? But you never have to like apologize for like disappearing or going silent or anything because they get it and recognize that you need that. And so that has been very helpful because I think that that doesn't cross over as much into the people in your like day-to-day life. Yeah. Yeah. I I really, I definitely can understand that piece of it. It's just like needing somebody to get what you're going through so that you don't, it, it takes energy, right? It takes emotional and mental energy to sit there and explain over and over what you've gone through, what's going on in your head. Um, I definitely experienced that quite a bit with my experiences with anxiety, with postpartum depression and anxiety as well. Um, it's just a lot. So, well, I, I know we're, we've been, we've gone for going for a bit. So, um, first, I just want to thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing your story here. Um, I am so grateful for that. And some, for the insights that you've offered. And then I have two final questions for you. So number one, what is your absolute like favorite go-to form of self-care? Like just the thing that lights you up. That's very healing that like your go-to in your toolkit and bonus points. If it's something that somebody might not consider typical self-care um because over here we like to focus on effective self-care whatever that means for you so um I don't know if it's like non-traditional necessarily um but I like to so I like to turn all of the lights off and then just light candles um especially ones that have like a really relaxing soothing scent like lavender Mm -hmm. or um I even have just a white one and it's like restore and refresh or something is what it's called. (laughs) Um, But just those, um, like the more soothing scents and just kind of put them around, like I'll have one on my desk, one in the window. So they kind of light up the room, but it just makes it feel like more soothing and comforting. And it's almost kind of like a blanket around you. And for me, that's huge because my mom laughs every time I come home, I turn on like every light in the house and she always knows. I'm like, I can't eat in the dark. I can't see my food. And so whenever I'm at her house, she'll like turn off a light because she doesn't like lights. And I'm like, I can't see. So um, if I need that darkness and that can't, like, it's definitely um, sort of a visual, represent- visual representation of like, I'm needing that self-care and restore. Mm-hmm. And then um, I'll either have like, depending on the day, I'll either have like a glass of wine or um, like a good chai tea latte or like a hot chocolate, but just sort of a, um, like a drink, drink that makes it feel more <laughs> like a special occasion mm-hmm. and then um either read or write depending on what my mood is um I'm very much a writer writing for me is very healing um it's self-care when everything is upside down that's kind of how I sort out my thoughts and yeah. there I'm writing a book <laughs> I keep saying I'm writing oh, a book you are? because hopefully eventually it will all come together um yeah. but I've been doing some quote-unquote market research but um <laughs> turning all of the journaling and stuff that I've done through my cancer journey into um part memoir part 
personal development isn't really the right word, but mm-hmm. I wanted to share like my story, but then also be there as something that will help other people who um, maybe are newly diagnosed or struggling with their diagnosis so that it's there to help them too. Um, but then, yeah. So depending on the day, I either read, if I feel like I kind of need more of like an escape, I, I've been reading and writing for as long as I can remember. I wrote my first book when I was in third grade. Oh, <laughs> my God. grandma sent it to a publisher. So <sighs> thank you, grandma, for believing in me when everything I wrote about was like finding a long lost twin sister that I never knew I had. Oh my God. Was that all of us that wrote that? That was like <laughs> such a thing, having a long lost twin sister. I, I had all brothers. So it was like a huge fantasy to like have a sister. Like, And I had a sister, but I blame like the... Um, height of the Sweet Valley Twins, Sweet Valley High mm, yeah. era for I needed mm-hmm. the identical twin. And my sister looked like me, but she was two years younger and just didn't didn't fit the box <laughs> I needed, I guess, at the time. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted cool. someone I could switch places with. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So last question. Where can they find you to get more of your ma- amazing insight and your content and all of that? Yeah, the two places I am most present um, are my Instagram, which is Jen with two N's underscore Patrice. So that's J-E-N-N underscore P-A-T-R-I-C-E. And my website, which is jenpatrice.com, obviously same spelling. (laughs) Um, Links for the podcast, which is um, Company You Keep. It's on Apple, Spotify, um, everywhere that you find podcasts. Um, but there are links in my Instagram bio, but I also have an Instagram for that, which is company you keep pod. And yeah, those are the spaces that I most show up on. But if you really look, you can also find me on Facebook and Twitter. Mm-hmm. Just not as often. Mm-hmm. And some on her track still, I think you still have some art. I assume you still have plenty of articles on her track as well. I do have articles on her track. Um, I'm now the social media team lead. So I'm a little bit more behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, haven't written as much, but yes, still, I do still pop up every now and then with an article. Love that. Well, I will be sure to link all of that down below so that you can go find Jen. And thank you so much for being on with me today. Thank you. Hey friend, before you go, I want to share an opportunity with you. I'm offering one-on-one self-care coaching via Voxer, a walkie-talkie style app where we can exchange voice messages. Self-care Voxer coaching looks like having me in your pocket for unlimited encouragement, advice, and support Monday through Friday. Together, we will work through how you can build effective and sustainable self-care into your life, as well as navigate the overwhelm, anxiety, and frustrating mindset blocks that may be preventing you from practicing self-care right now. Ultimately, I can help you build self-care into your day-to-day life so that you can reduce the constant noise of anxiety and the exhaustion that comes with it. And ultimately, it will leave you feeling more nourished and balanced than ever. If you're interested in learning more about this opportunity, reach out to me via Instagram at sarahstrives or visit selfcare.life backslash voxer. Thanks again for tuning into the Self-Care Life podcast. I will talk at you or hopefully with you again soon.